Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings here at the U.S. Naval Institute. With me in the studio today is Commander Matt Wright, U.S. Navy. He's a Navy helicopter pilot, and he is the winner of the 2022 CNO Naval History Essay Contest. Matt, great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks, Bill. It's a real honor to be here. Thanks. So uh, just start with a little bit of your background. You graduated from the Naval Academy in 2002. Ought to, that's right. It's yeah. really hard for me to say 2002, yeah. uh, but 2002, that makes me feel old. Uh, you're a helicopter guy. You commanded Helicopter Sea Combat Squadron 22. Pretty good. Thank you, job. In uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Yes, sir. And so you finished up your 05 command, and now you're in Millington, Tennessee at Navy Personnel Command. What's your job there? I'm the Deputy Director for Aviation Distribution. So PERS 43, I'm the, I'm the deputy. So I'm the I'm the XO of the detailers. Uh, manpower, retention, getting people to do department head tours. How's, how's all that going? Yeah, well, it, uh, in aviation, it's interesting. It's, um, it, de- it depends is the short answer. So some communities are struggling uh, with retention, with department head fills. Other communities, not as much. Um, and it depends, breaks down between um, 1310s, pilots, and, and, and naval flight officers, 1320s. Um, and then aviation accessions as well, and, and the pipeline. It's a, it's a constant churn, and it takes a lot of real focus from smart people to get and, done. And PERS 43 is all of aviation, so you're not just seeing helicopters. You're seeing right. all of it, growlers, right. P-8s, Hilo squadrons, Super Hornets, the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. All, all aviation officers uh, is yeah. who we detail, uh, to include the ground pounders, LDOs, and uh, maintenance uh, duty officers. Wow. Okay. Good. Good. Well, you're really here to talk about your essay from the CNO Naval History Essay Contest. So that is a a big contest. Uh, started in 2018, I think was when we uh, when we kicked off the first iteration of the contest. Uh, so CNO level attention on naval history. Admiral Richardson uh, asked NHHC. They asked the Naval uh, Institute. He asked the Naval Academy and Naval War College to get together and, uh, and put together a, a, history, a, a contest focused on history, but not just on history for history's sake, but history for the lessons that apply to today. So a lot in the challenge question about you know, the rise of great power competition or the reemergence of it, about uh, Russia, China, about you know, what are some lessons, uh, particular things that we can draw upon from naval history to apply to how we deal with today's challenges. Mm-hmm. So your article is published in the January issue of Proceedings. It is titled Just In Time Production. And you look at the Battle of Midway specifically. You look at the three aircraft carriers that the U.S. committed to that battle. You look at Admiral Nimitz's strategic calculus uh, in a, in a, through a lens of, of uh, the production of uh, of ships, right, and, and getting ships ready for, for battle early in the war mm-hmm. and the decisions that had to be made in peacetime to allow those decisions to be made. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk a little bit about maybe 100,000-foot perspective. Sure. Just start us off. Sure. Uh, I guess the, the reason why I started thinking about this is kind of where I am in, in my life. I'm, I'm still an active naval aviator. I expect to go back to sea, and I'm looking, what is that going to be like a year, two, three years uh, down the line? And, and I found myself reading a lot about uh, the first year of World War II in the Pacific. Um, those, those officers, the men that, that, that fought that, that war on, the, on these ships that we're talking about were in the peacetime Navy just you know, six months prior, a year yeah. prior. Uh, and, and that's really where we find ourselves today. So I, I, I saw some of myself, potential future version of myself, uh, in the, the men and women I was reading about. 
And the, the article, certainly, you know, I'm a naval aviator, so I, obviously I talk about aircraft carriers in Midway. But um, it's not really about the, ba the battle of Midway itself. It's much more uh, on how did we build the ships that won the battle of Midway, the three aircraft carriers, Yorktown, Enterprise, and Hornet. Uh, how and why were they built, uh, and, and when were those decisions made, I thought was really interesting as I was kind of reading and getting, getting ready to write uh, and, and, and go into that. But it, suffice it to say, a lot of those decisions were made well in advance of mm -hmm. uh, any indications of World War II on the horizon. 1933 is when the first two were, were purchased. That's you know, well in advance of any sort of threat, uh, direct threat, that, this, that World War II might actually happen. So yeah. I recognize relevance to that. Uh, so um, Yorktown, Enterprise, Hornet, those are the U.S. carriers that were at Midway. Uh, so you, you just mentioned a little bit, 1933 was the decision to purchase the first two, right? Uh, when were they built? When were they brought online? And, and when did they, um, you know, first see fleet use mm -hmm. uh, so that they were ready for, you know, um, it, uh, for 1941, 1942? Right. We're, we're looking now, it, it's been, what, 20-something years since the decision to purchase the USS Gerald yeah, R. Sure. Ford, right? Sure. Uh, so th these are decisions to make capital ships. They take, they, they have to be made long time before you need them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's you can timestamp these and see what was going on in the, in the world. 1933, uh, first year of the Roosevelt administration, part of, part of the uh, New Deal uh, yep. initiation. National Industrial Recovery Act, NIRA, is, is what paid for first the Yorktown and the Enterprise simultaneously. Uh, and the act itself was not focused on building aircraft carriers. It was, it was focused on the New Deal, Al Alphabet Soup, and Workers' Progress Administration. And, uh, talked about uh, collective bargaining rights. The, the the purchase of these ships was just part of a, a larger whole, hmm. uh, and it was it was driven by by President Roosevelt largely, uh, who, who always saw himself as a Navy man and, and as a navalist, and he understood. They had to make these capital investments well in advance of whatever risk might be on the horizon if you don't know what specifically it was. So the timeline, um, the first two ships, uh, Yorktown and Enterprise, were essentially built simultaneously, both purchased shortly within months of the, uh, the, the appropriation of the money. And they took about four years to build and, and were uh, commissioned in 1937. And then if you, so if you look, at, look at the timeline, 1937 to Battle of Midway is 1942, that's right. just five years. That's, five years. That's a pretty short time, right? For these ships to be uh, to be worked up, for the air crew and the and the, and the ship's crew to, to learn how to fight them, and they were just barely ready. Um, mm. Once World War II kicks off uh, with Pearl Harbor, of course, uh, in the Pacific, and then and then Hornet, Hornet is even even closer. Talk about just in times. Kind of what got me thinking of it. It was purchased with the Naval Expansion Act of um, 1938, uh, Second Vincent Act, is also called. Yep. Um, and it was it was commissioned a couple just a couple months before Pearl Harbor. So wow. So Pearl Harbor happens. It's Pierside in Norfolk. All right, we got to get this thing uh, ready to go and get it to the Pacific. Uh, and they picked up the Doolittle Raid aircraft, did the Doolittle Raid, and then it was time for Midway. It was it was really that quick for for the Hornet. Uh, and then, but once again, you take it backwards in time. 1938. That's before World War II starts in Europe. Uh, that's before the Japanese invade much of uh, French Indochina and then and, and the southern south in the South Pacific. Um, so World War II, you know, there's threats of it then, but yep. it was certainly not a, a definite thing, uh, and and it was just ramping up. And I, I talk a little bit about that, that in the article. I like the fact that in your article you you mentioned Yorktown and that 
often in the discussion about Midway, the, the discussion gets to Yorktown and its battle damage uh, from Coral Sea right. and getting it back and, the you know, the, oh, my God, we've got to get this ship ready to get underway to be part of the Battle of Midway. But your article goes back before that, not the repairs, but the decision to, to build it, right? So it's the, it's the not... You know, what would happen if Yorktown hadn't been ready to get underway, but what if Yorktown and Hornet and uh, Enterprise had never been built? Right, had never been built or wait, even just waited wait. to, be, wait to build until, you know, World War II was on the horizon, say 1938, or the Two Ocean Navy Act was 1940. What if they had waited until then? That Those three ships would not have been at Midway. Uh, it would have been a completely different uh, situation and, 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 you know, to the clear detriment of the, the, the country. Uh, you, you mentioned some uh, shipbuilding statistics from World War One as well and how some of those decisions came late and the, the fleet that we needed for World War One really wasn't ready until 1919. Right. Talk about that for a second. Right, yeah, so if you look at the... the the U.S. fleet at the end of World War I, uh, like in 1919 time, it's over 700 ships, it's almost 800 ships. It's on par with the British Navy. Uh, and then comes uh, the supposed, I don't think they called it at that time, but we would call it a peace dividend now. Yeah. Uh, and you start talking uh, naval arms limitation treaties, Washington and then London, and then um, some isolation of sentiment and restriction of, of, of naval shipbuilding budgets. And that, that fleet was either decommissioned or aged very quickly from, from 1919 till 1933, when, when once again uh, it starts being built. We start rearming uh, in a naval fashion. But the, if, you, if you look at, so how did it, at the end of World War I, 774 th ships, I think, how did it atrophy down to about 300 and that it was in 1933? Uh, it, was, it was lack of investment, and, and it was... Um, uh, a lack of understanding for the importance of the Navy as a, as a capital investment in future security. And, and it really was um, President Roosevelt, who, who was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy during World War I, during, mm -hmm. uh, during the Wilson administration. He, he, under, he had seen the failure of um, uh, American uh, naval shipbuilding uh, during the war to ramp up quickly. So that was part of his calculus and, to get the train started early and to get the, uh, the pump primed for the uh, future uh, allocations to buy bigger fleets. So uh, salient points for what we're facing now in terms of great power competition, in terms of, you know, I've been to the Submarine League event in November. I was at the Surface Navy Association event just last month in, Jan in, uh, in, in Crystal City in, in January. Uh, a lot of conversations at both of those about industrial capacity. Mm -hmm about shipbuilding capacity. The CNO um, on record has uh, sort of um, goaded the shipbuilding industry, if you will, to, mm -hmm. to produce more ships, uh, produce them faster. Uh, there's, at, at, at the sub-league, there was an amazing conversation, very candid, about uh, the goal of being able to build two plus one, so two Virginia-class submarines and one uh, Columbia-class sub SSBN, um, by the end of this decade, to mm -hmm. get to that capacity, and and sort of a, amazing that you know right now we're at one one and a half mm -hmm. maybe SSNs per year, uh, plus we're trying to add in the SSBN capacity, uh, but getting to two plus one is going to take some time. And there was a discussion; it ranged all the way from mm -hmm. uh, you know from uh, uh, vocational technical training for welders and pipe fitters and electricians and you know, engineers all the way up to, you know, the, the impacts of the budget, right, and the impacts of what happens when you have continuing resolutions mm -hmm. and, and you can't actually buy what you want to buy or you delay 
um, you know, the shipbuilding. So uh, I'm curious from your, your perspective um, on industrial capacity, right. shipyard capacity, what are some of those, you know, uh, specific lessons from the interwar year period that you studied for this, uh, for this essay? Right. There, there are some similarities in numbers and in years. Um, so if you look back to 19, 1933, we had the same number of private shipyards in 1933 than, than we do now. We had seven, seven private shipyards. Mm. And, and actually they had slightly more capacity then uh, because the public shipyards would do new construction, whereas now we focus primarily on um, nuclear and maintenance right. uh, of, the, of the existing fleet. Um, but with the appropriation of the money, the shipyards came. It was essentially uh, what I came to, the realization I came to. And I'm going to run out of my uh, expertise very quickly. So I look forward That's to fine. OPNAV yeah. uh, staff uh, telling me all the things I got wrong in the pages of proceedings. <laughs> uh, however, uh, uh, the allocation of the money and the, the shipyards uh, matriculate. Free market as society and, and uh, our industry met, met the need such that uh, I mentioned in the article it was over 40 by, by the time Pearl Harbor happens and, and, and scaling up. So it was that it wow. was the allocation of the money for start, that started with the NIRA and, and then continued on with uh, first and second Vincent Acts and the two Ocean Navy Acts that, that prompted industry to, to meet the need. Um, so that that's the the parallel that I would draw. And and then uh, if you talk about 30-year shipbuilding plan and how many ships we're going to build a year, I'm, I'm going to run out of expertise very quickly when you talk about uh, uh, the capacity of the workforce and things like that. But uh, we, we're building about the same number of ships as we did just before World War One. And that failure and ramp up, uh, we were building just over 12 ships uh, a year until the, the Naval Expansion Act of, of 1916. Um, I think I got that right. But, the, okay. but the, the ramp up was slow as a result. So it was about 12 ships a year, and then the, the act happens, and it's a slow ramp up. And then now we're about 10 ships a year, if you, if you average it out in the last five years. So it's, it's rather similar. So we haven't primed, okay. the, we haven't primed the pump for the, for the big acts that may follow. Yeah. Uh, your article also points to the the, uh, the the point. I think it's a very telling one about the political necessity that the you know building a navy, maintaining a navy. Uh, it's a political decision, right. right? This is Congress has to act. You know, with with the backing of the American people. Mm -hmm. uh, it, and and we we actually had John Lehman on the uh, podcast, and he wrote in uh, a year ago, um, the January twenty twenty one. Uh, issue of proceedings for the American Sea Power Project, and he talked about the 600 ship buildup of the Reagan years, and and so I, I I'm, I'm drawn to the parallel between FDR being a navalist, right. Reagan being a navalist. Uh, so having somebody in the in the White House who understands the need for a strong navy for the United States national security, as well as the the backing, mm -hmm. you know, on Capitol Hill, right? And and it has to be bipartisan. It's got to be this. There's just a recognition that you need a navy to secure right. uh, the national security of a of a nation that is a two ocean fronting nation. Right, and, and these elected officials are just representing representing us, the citizenry. So, the, right, the, the the American people have to believe that this is worth worth their taxpayer dollars uh, to buy the hedge against future risk, future risk to their freedom, to the economy, et cetera. And I'm glad you mentioned the American Sea Power Project because I, I know that's that's a, a big big part of that is educating the American people, not just the, the decision makers. And I uh, also mentioned B.J. Armstrong had, a, had an article um, that as I was getting ready to write this, I, I just happened to read it then. And I think it was American uh, naval dominance is not a birthright or something along those lines. Exactly. In fact, there's a line in your, I think it was the last paragraph yeah. of your of your article, you, you mentioned that, right? You say, oh, yeah. if American naval dominance is, or, or if naval dominance is not an, an American birthright. Right. So, 
continue. We have, we have, we have to invest in it. This is something that we have, to, we have to pay forward for future generations. These are capital ships, capital investments. Um, and, and that's essentially the, the argument that President Roosevelt, Congressman Vinson, would have been able to articulate and did articulate in the 1930s. Uh, and then I think we're, we're working towards articulating now. And, I'm, you know, I've read this article. It's just like a... I'm not, I should say that, that it's a CNO's history essay competition, rising historian competi- uh, category. I think it used to be called the amateur historian ca- uh, category. Uh, so that's kind of how I feel interacting with, the, with this level of, of dialogue. But, but that's, that's how, that's, as I was reading and thinking about this stuff, that, that's what came to my mind. And um, I should also mention Jamie McGrath. Captain Jamie McGrath has written for proceedings and elsewhere as well. Uh, I, I valued his, uh, his contributions and kind of piggybacked on those. That's terrific. Uh, I will point out to our listeners that the CNO Naval History Essay Contest, the All-NAV, the All-Navy message for 2023's contest is about to go out. So we were looking at that. The draft is being staffed among uh, uh, the director of the Navy staff, NHHC, the Naval Institute. Uh, so that All-NAV message will be out very soon, if not you know, by the end of this week. Um, and you can also find details about the CNO Naval History Essay Contest on our website. If you go under uh, Proceedings and look at Essay Contests, all the information is there. And as you just mentioned, uh, there's now there's three categories. So we have professional historian category. So if you're a Ph.D. historian, if you, you know, teach history, naval history, uh, if you've written books on naval history, you're a published author, you know, uh, book-wise. A Trent Hone, for example, might be a good example. Um, then that's for that the, you would fit in the professional historian category. If you're a uh, active duty Navy Reserve officer, a part-time historian, you love to read history, you, you're interested in uh, the impacts, then you're in the rising historian category, not amateur, but rising historian category. And now we're adding to this year, we're adding the midshipman and cadets essay contest or the midshipman and cadet category under the CNO Naval History. So if you're at the Coast Guard Academy, the Naval Academy, midshipmen in NROTC, any other commissioning program headed to being an officer in the sea services, you can write for this contest under the midshipmen and cadet category. So look for that. Uh, top prize is six. 6000 or 5000 It was five grand when I won it. So 5000 Yeah, way. no, it's our general prize at 6000 the CNO Naval History Essay Contest. Top prize, 5000 Second prize, 2500 And third prize is $1,500. And you'll get uh, published in proceedings. We, we um, congratulated you uh, here at the Naval Academy, mm-hmm. at the Naval Institute in October. Right. Uh, and the CNO was there for that. Uh, so that was kind of a nice event. We got the reception at the superintendent's uh, house. The night before, and um, that's where you and I uh, met for the first time. Before you, you've written uh, three or four other pieces for proceedings. Mm-hmm. They've been published uh, a couple of years ago. Is your first time? Uh, I'm just curious from your perspective. You, you've you've commanded now. You're uh, you know a, a more senior officer, um, and you've started writing for proceedings as a commander. Um, you know, how did it go? What was your you know in terms of uh, motivation to write, and then also the reception. What did your JOs think? What did your colleagues think? Uh, what did your chain of command think about you know what you've written in proceedings? Yeah, um, so I, I started reading proceedings and listening to this podcast. So this is very cool. Thank you um, uh, for a number of years, uh, kind of as a, as a new commander. And then um, uh, as I was a commanding officer of a helicopter squadron, 
um, it was during the COVID time. And, and I, I felt like uh, the Navy was making some mistakes. We needed to make some changes. I felt very strongly about that. And I could see the, the impacts of, of COVID restrictions on, on, uh, on, my, on my command mainly, but, but my, my shipmates uh, all around the seawall. So I felt pretty strongly that things needed to change. And finally, I, I decided I, I, had to, I had to write the article. And it was, it was pretty scary, uh, honestly. Uh, one, because I hadn't written anything in a long time since you know, school, basically. Yep. Um, but two, I thought, I thought I'd get in trouble from, you know, from above. And I, I thought my buddies would make fun of me. Uh, and neither of those things happened, I can honestly say. Um, my chain of command was incredibly supportive. Thank you, Commodore Meet Keys. Uh, and then my buddies, there's nothing but support. They're, turns out they're way more mature than I gave them credit for at the time. <laughs> Um, and uh, through the act of writing that article, which I only wrote, honestly, because I felt like I had to, um, I realized that I like reading. I like writing. I, like all the, I started getting into the Naval Institute and writing for proceedings, and, and the subsequent articles have, have, have kind of come from that motivation. Uh, that's great. Uh, I, I can say, and, and I, this is a question, you know, you brought up the fear that, mm -hmm. that went into before you publish, right? And we hear that from uh, authors from time to time. Well, somebody will say, well, sir, I, I, I'm worried about if I publish this or if I say that, you know, I, I could get in trouble. It happens so rarely. Uh, I've been here at the Naval Institute now at, on the staff side for six and a half years. I've never honestly heard of a substantiated case of somebody getting in trouble, even when they write, you know, very controversial articles, uh, you know, taking the Navy to task on certain things, disagreeing with policy like you did with COVID, um, disagreeing with uh, a programmatic decision, disagreeing with, you know, even, a, you know, a littoral combat ship is one where we've had certainly written a lot on uh, or published a lot on that topic. Uh, but it, it really doesn't happen, you know, when you write professionally. You, you get out there, people that are, um, are interested in the professional debate will debate you. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, you know, the, your, your idea gets tried by fire in terms of the, you know, may the best idea win. Um, but rarely does anybody get in trouble. Rarely does, I mean, I, I honestly can't think of a single example in six and a half years that I've been here. And I wrote for proceedings and I served on the editorial board back in the 1990s. Uh, never heard of an example. Now, sometimes people aren't happy with 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 a particular article, but in terms of uh, you know professional retribution, it, it really it just doesn't happen. No, I, I think that that's due to the Naval Institute in, in large part, right? We have, we have a culture where we we advocate for that sort of discourse and open an open discourse, uh, disagreeing with policy. In my case, uh, inside of a military organization, really is yep. would would naturally not be um, you know something we would foster, but. Uh, largely because the Naval Institute kind of protects. There's, there's, you know, protection over these authors as long as it's respectful and informed. And then if it's wrong or someone thinks it's wrong, they're welcome to, to take part in the open forum and exactly. tell us all about why, uh, why whatever I wrote was, was completely off base. So exactly. I, now, I uh, that. Yeah, the open forum that, uh, you know, the idea that you, you write is there's, there's thesis, there's antithesis, there's synthesis. I also often tell people that no proceedings article, no one proceedings article is the alpha and the omega on any topic. You know, so if you have uh, a topic in mind, in fact, we were just going through an analysis of all the different things we've published in about the last three years on, on EABO and Force Design 2030. So big topics, lots of debate within the Marine Corps, especially on those. And, you know, proceedings has published things that are pro, that are con, that are critical, that say yes, but, or yes, and, um, uh, but it's not one article that's going right. to start and, and finish the conversation. It's an article that adds to a conversation, starts a conversation, and then more stuff comes. 
um, and then the you know it plays out the conversation the ideas play out so yeah, thanks for uh, for yeah, pointing sure. that out yeah, and sure. and for being part of the open forum and for you know having the courage to weigh in on the first thing that you did yeah thanks good cool good 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 well the article is titled just in time production it looks at aircraft carrier production naval production the ramp up uh, in the 1930s to get ready for World War II uh, the ships that would that, that did fight mm-hmm. decisively at midway midway not not just what they did at the battle but also the decisions the political decisions that had to be made right. to to build those ships and get them ready uh, f- before the start of World War II, uh, before the, the, the clouds were even on the horizon at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my guest has been Matt Wright, Commander, U.S. Navy, and uh, he's a detailer, but we won't hold that him against him. I'm a real person. <laughs> <laughs> Detailers are real people. Uh, Matt, thanks again for uh, writing for the, for the contest, and thanks for stopping by uh, the Naval Institute today. My pleasure. All right. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. 